What is up, everyone? Thank you for making Change Agents skyrocket in the charts. Listen, we want to hear from you. What subjects do you want Andy to talk on? What agents of change do you want to be guests on Change Agents? We want your comments below. Tell us what you think. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. According to the Veterans Affairs and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, there were 33,129 veterans in the United States. By that, I mean homeless veterans in the United States in 2022. There are an estimated 4,000 homeless veterans in Los Angeles alone. And my guest today has a very unique understanding of this problem. Anna Scott is a reporter and producer for KCRW and NPR's national programs focused on housing and homelessness. And is the host of KCRW's podcast, City of Tents, Veterans Row. And the show takes a deep dive into the creation of Veterans Row outside of L.A.'s Brentwood neighborhood and sheds light on the ongoing homelessness crisis. In 2020, after the VA rejected tents, and that was due to their size, which were donated by a conservative activist group, Judicial Watch. Veterans received the tents directly and set up an encampment just outside of the VA's West LA campus. That campus became known as Veterans Row. It was a sanctioned tent city that served as a Band-Aid for an ongoing issue. And today, Anna is going to talk with us uh, about what became of that tent city, what we can learn about homelessness from that incident, and what some long-term solutions could look like. So I lived down in San Diego for just over a decade, and there certainly is homelessness there. And I remember driving, you'd catch glimpses of some encampments, usually near uh, overpasses. I don't think, at least when I lived there, it didn't seem to be as pervasive as it is in certain areas of LA. And then moved my family up to Northwestern Montana, which in the summer months, there are people that are transient for sure. In the winter months, you better pack a lunch if you want to be homeless in Montana. When we go through cold snaps that are like negative 30, we have one that hit negative 30 this year. So it's not like it doesn't exist, but you are confronted with it so infrequently. And I flew in two days ago and it hit me and it hit me even this morning. I knew that we were going to sit down and have this conversation at some point during this week, but even I'm seeing at a hotel that is over, um, you can see it in the skyline. And even just on this short Uber drive over here, it is, I don't even know the right word for it. It just is kind of overwhelming to see the conditions that some of them forced perhaps. I mean, I mean, there's such a spectrum of, of reasons why people are homeless as a, you know, far more than I do, whether it is a life circumstance or mental health or a substance abuse or trauma at an early age or a combination of all of those things. But it was, it was jarring. And it has been jarring in every Uber ride that I have done. And just looking at the abject poverty and living conditions 
that is the normal for some people, I almost think you have to get away from it a little bit to pay attention to it more. Because for me, it was almost the only thing that I saw on the ride over here. For people who choose to live in LA, not that it's correct in any way, but I think it just becomes part of the back the backdrop. They ignore it. Yeah. It, it doesn't surprise me that you have a hard time getting people to care. Unless they have a negative touch point with somebody who is in that ecosystem, and then all of a sudden becomes very forward-facing and important to them. Yeah, and as much as it, it's totally true. People do just take it in eventually as part of the landscape and tune out. As much as that's true, it is also because it's so in your face in LA. It is a very high-ranking political issue here. We just recently had a mayor's race that pretty much all revolved around homelessness. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, Give me the uh, uh, arguments on both sides, like overview. Yeah, you know, what was interesting about the two candidates that ended up um, in the runoff was that actually policy-wise, they were not super-duper far apart in terms of the things that they were posing. When I looked at what they were posing, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> but the way they talked about it was quite different, um, and the way they presented was different. So you had... Rick Caruso, who's a billionaire real estate developer, he's known for these outdoor malls that you can find around LA or a couple of them. Um, and he was more talking to people who are just bent up. They're just pissed off. They don't want to see it. Um, it's disturbing. They're just like, I don't care how you get rid of it. Just make it go away. He was talking more to that contingent. And then Karen Bass, who ended up winning, uh, is a longtime politician. She was in state government, um, but had been in community organizer prior to that um she was more about talking about uh finding people housing finding solutions you know presenting a more compassionate way of talking about it um you know i mean la is a very blue place obviously so they're all sort of talking to that side of the aisle but to different degrees and um but really what they were actually proposing was was quite similar i mean an increase in shelter beds making it easier to build affordable housing, trying to get more services to people on the streets that, you know, uh, they had different ways of they were posing to get those things. But, but at the end of the day, they weren't super far apart on the concrete stuff. So you've been focusing on the issue for seven years. Do you think either of them presented a truly viable solution? And I hate to use the word solution because I'm not an expert in homelessness, but it, it is an issue that I don't know if we could ever completely solve. Some people choose to live on the streets, you know, and, and I do believe that there is a tie uh, oftentimes to mental health when it comes to that. It's, it's, there are options available. They choose not to par- partake in those options. And again, that's why I say, I don't know if it's necessarily solvable because I don't know how to solve that particular aspect of the issue. Yeah. Well, okay. Should we end the weeds? Fire <laughs> away. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, so, so I think what you're talking about, it is, it's a really common perception that there's a large contingent of people that, that want to be homeless. I don't think it's large. Yeah. The contingent I was talking about, I actually think it's yeah. small, but that ties into, right because they are making that choice, I don't know if we'd ever be able to solve the issue because they would refuse any of the options presented. Well, I mean, the perception that there's, that, that that's a large contingent yeah. is, is big, but you're right. It's a small, it's a small group of people probably that would take that stance because I spend a lot of my time just going to different encampments around town, yeah. 
This most recent project I did focused on one where I kind of embedded for about a year and a half. And it's very rare that I'll meet somebody who is, you know, I'm in this situation because this is what I wanted to do with my life. And even you will sometimes meet people who might just say that right off the bat. But once you talk to them for a while, you'll usually unravel a much more complicated story, um, you know, that begins with some kind of hardship, some kind of, you know, something that got them into this position that, you know, that they really don't want to be in. I think there are certain parts of town where you might meet more, um, like out by the beach, you sometimes do meet people that are more kind of traveler types, it, but in a very, it's a very specific area. And maybe, you know, they're like going to different states, but it's a small contingent and a small, um, and they're usually geographically just in a few places. But most people who are homeless in LA County were last housed in LA County. So, and have lived here for quite a while. Um, so there are, there definitely are solutions, but I also don't want to oversimplify. Like, yeah. oh, we just need to do this or we just need to do that. Um, I would say when you look at a big system problem like homelessness, I think it's helpful to look at what everybody has in common because you're right on an individual level. I mean, the stories are just as varied as if you went into any of these apartment buildings that we can see out the window and ask every single person there, you know, what's your life story? Um, so, but the thing they all have in common is they fell out of the housing market at some point in time. And it's not a coincidence that the places around the country that have this problem, LA, San Francisco, New York, have not very much housing availability, not very much housing affordability. Um, if you look at the parts of the country that have the highest rates of mental health issues, addiction issues, it's actually not these cities. It doesn't really correlate with homelessness. But if you do have issues like that, and you do happen to live in a place where housing is scarce and there's not a lot of cheap options available, you're more vulnerable to falling into homelessness. And then once you have a lot of people on the streets, of course, you know, it overlaps with all these other crises. You absolutely see a lot of overlap with all the holes in our mental health system. And um, right now, the cheapest street drugs you can find are meth, fentanyl, um, really dangerous drugs, and or in the case of fentanyl, and drugs that really affect people's behavior in the case of meth, right? So suddenly, you know, the problem is much more visible in a way that it wasn't before. So it's like- It gets real messy up where I live. There, yeah. There are some street corner dancers that, that have some moves. I'm not going to lie. I mean, hey, you know. They are expressing, they're artists. They're expressing themselves in a way that I don't understand. Yeah. And well, talking to people that I don't see, but I, I know exactly what you Yes. Yeah. You know, building like big sculptures and things sometimes. Um, but I think, so when you look at it on the street, I mean, it, it looks like this- like, my gosh, how can we ever fix this? We have to fix our substance use problems. We have to fix our mental health system. We have to fix the foster care system. But but I think if you look at, you know, well, what does everybody here have in common? They fell out of the housing market. And, um, you know, if there were more cheap options available, that would be a big start. I mean, in LA County, one of the reasons it's hard to get people off the street is just there's not a lot to offer. So... It's not the cheapest place to live. No. And when I say affordable housing, I don't mean necessarily like subsidized housing. Like not everybody needs that, you know. Um, I mean, there's compared to the need, there's not enough of that. But also just cheap apartments or um, SROs. We tore down a lot of these old single room occupancy hotels that people used to live in for a couple hundred bucks a month. Or um, 
boarding care places for people with mental health issues. A lot of those have closed. So just we've lost a lot of all sorts of cheap options. And um, and we really don't have enough shelter beds either, which I, I think a lot of people don't know that. They think that there's this plethora of shelter beds and that people are turning them down, sometimes for good reason. But, um, but that's not true if every homeless person in L.A. was like, I need to go inside tonight then we wouldn't have enough beds. When you are, you said you were embedded largely in an encampment for a year and a half. Where did you come up with that idea? Did you have any hesitation or trepidation about doing so? I mean, how, what was the reception like? Yeah, no, I did it, which I mean, maybe I, maybe I should like when I'm out and about doing my job, I am kind of like Pollyanna-ish. It's like, Hey, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I've rarely felt unsafe, you know, on the beat. But, but you know, I just take normal precau- precautions like anyone would probably um, not going out reporting at night and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, so the idea came. This was a really, really unique encampment. So the idea came from actually just seeing it originally. So this was, you know, as you said, you see tents all over L.A. Yeah. And it's pretty commonplace. But this, it formed early in the pandemic. And it was big a long row of these big matching tents they were all identical so it looked like okay somebody planned this and they all had identical american flags on the front which was very eye-catching um relevant to this they were all right outside of a big va campus so big veterans affairs campus where there's a hospital there for military veterans and this is also in a very fancy part of town this is in brentwood which I don't know if, if you're outside of LA and you've heard of Brentwood, it's probably because of the OJ Simpson case. Um, okay. If you're over seven eight, you know, that's where OJ went. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is in the middle of Brentwood. It's got this huge camp. I mean, it's like half a football field long. And um, so originally it, the way I ended up embedding in this camp was just came from the question of what the hell is going on over there? This looks like something different. And um, so I went to check it out, discovered that it was actually a camp of mostly homeless military veterans. And um, and they had set up the camp there for many reasons, including they, they wanted to make a point at, about being right outside this particular VA. And so it became it was a really fascinating situation. Originally, I just did a one-off story about it. And then um, I was talking to my bosses about what we might do for the next like long-form narrative project. And I said, well, maybe this veterans thing, but you got to give me like two weeks to make sure that, you know, somebody's there that I can follow, that this is, that this really has the juice for eight episodes, but it really did. And, and one of the reasons was actually, well, I'll say two, two reasons. Well, one was that because it was mostly veterans, it really did change the politics around that camp in a way that I haven't encountered in any other encampments around Los Angeles, even ones that have become sort of flashpoints in the community, like, like this one eventually did. Um, the politics around this were all different, and that was really interesting to me. And then also, veterans are an interesting group because um, even though homelessness in general can feel really hopeless and has gone up in places like LA in recent years, veterans have really been a success story. Actually, veteran homelessness has gone down um, by a huge amount, like more than 50% since about 2010. So they're a really interesting case study in what works like wow we actually do we do know some of the things that work and we at least have this this case study and then this encampment was also its own little case study and the things that 
still aren't quite working and what gaps there still are in the system because here was this street with 50 guys living on it. So do veterans have different services available? And the motivation for that question being, if we see it work in one group, you know, I mean, my next logical place is going to be, why aren't we repeating that at a broader scale? Oh, this is exactly the question that I'm asking in this series, actually. Yeah, because they- It's they, like, hey, this works. Let's not do it everywhere. Why not? Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it, it would be expensive. So there's that, you know, and, and I think there's not the same kind of political support um, for to expand the services more broadly because people- just generally, you know, there's an understanding that veterans have given something to the country, deserve something back. I think that is a harder sell when you're talking about people that haven't done that service. But the so do veterans actually deserve more services than other people? I wouldn't make that argument, but um, I don't think I would either. But I think pe some people would. I think it's a fair argument to make. The other side of that argument that people are uncomfortable making is that veterans should be held to a higher standard. Um, and, I, and I realize coming from somebody who spent almost 20 years in the military that I am in some ways criticizing the own community that, my own community that I come from, that veterans make up 0.05% of the U.S. population currently. At peak levels, it was 6% in the middle of World War II. You know, it, military service is a great thing, but we've also been outside of a draft time period for almost four decades. So it's not like military service is accidental. And although the military will get their pound of flesh from you up front, you can get so much personally and professionally out of your military service that I feel like even if you do four years and for a lot, like pre 9-11 military service, I'm obviously speaking very broadly and making assumptions for some people. But in the people that I served with largely in the support capacity in the SEAL community, they looked at it as a way to change their socioeconomic status. It was their way from moving from New York to LA. They had no other way to do it, but you know what? I'll join the military. I'm going to get four years of service. I'm going to have my college degree paid for through the GI Bill. You're going to leave with hopefully a better understanding of communication skills, work ethic, among a variety of other things. When you exit your military service, when I look at what the military can provide to the individual, and I'll be the first to admit that it's a very unequal playing field from time to time, I think you come out more prepared for everyday life than your average citizen. It's, uh, and I'm not saying they should get less than anybody else. I wonder, though, how much more they should get than your average person who didn't choose to enlist in the military. It's an interesting conversation to have. I'm not arguing either way. Um... But I don't think that so much energy and effort should be placed on such a small percentage of our population while ignoring a, such a large percentage that is in the same situation. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And it's a good question because you're right. Veterans are this small percentage of the generous population. So small. Yeah. And a small percentage of the homeless population. Um, I mean, in L.A. County, there are 6% of all the people who are homeless so yeah and then you know and it's as you were talking I was thinking there's these other distinctions that are interesting I mean I'm I'm just thinking out loud but do you make distinctions between people who experience things in the military that led oh, to that versus PTSD stuff like that right versus people who you know whose homelessness is unrelated to their military service like 
Let me tell you who can't agree on any of those things. Veterans themselves. Yeah. So we are in, we're like in an egg beater of issues inside of the veteran community. The veteran community argues in and amongst itself of, well, what is my service worth if I serve in peacetime? What is my service worth if I served in wartime but didn't experience combat? What is my, is my service worth more if I served in a combat environment but also was involved in direct combat operations? You know, another stat that most people don't realize, in the military as a whole, about 10% of military jobs are actually designed around, around direct engagement with an enemy. Very few occupations inside of the military are actually designed as combat arms, yet everybody wants to focus on the post-traumatic stress associated with a direct engagement with an enemy or time served in a war zone, and it's not a measurement that can be equally applied. And again, even in the veteran community, there are no hard and fast answers to this, and it is truly, it's like making a cake and somebody's just sitting there with the egg beater. I don't know who's right. I don't know who's wrong. I don't know the answers to it. But it all comes into the calculus of where somebody ends up and why, and I think what should be available to them. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of interesting questions. And then, as you were saying, it's often a path for uh, to to get out of where you are, you know, or maybe there's socioeconomic reasons you go into it, and then that could be related to where you end up later because... Totally. I served yeah. with legitimate, like, road Scholar Silver Spoon. I'm talking about they were born with a sterling silver monogram spoon like wow you are special in your own way and then i started with people who were homeless before military service who literally came from the ghetto they left you know in my dad's area he'd be like well i got the choice between vietnam or prison i'm like shut up you did not you grew up in santa cruz and you were a bricklayer like get out of here with that crap but there are people who were given that choice in the modern era it's it's not really like that but i know people who i served with them in the seal community who deeply entrenched here in LA in, in gangs and realized they were either going to die in the gang or they had to move, but they had nowhere they could go. So they found the military recruiting deep. They didn't even know what a SEAL was until they were already in the Navy. They were some of the most hardworking, competent operators that I had ever spent time with, as were some of the Silver Spoon people, but it's, it's a mix in between. Oftentimes people find that, uh, you know, they'll enter military service and it becomes a resume bullet. Um, you know, other times people find it and it becomes a total occupation or vocation. They spend 20, 30 years and they go off and they do great things. And sometimes people spend four years in and spend the rest of their life wearing camouflage fatigues, telling people about things that they didn't actually do and places that they never actually went to. And they can't get past the identity and everything in between. So the military is such a melting pot of humanity. And I think that's one thing that is generally lost on people who never lived or served in the military they just it's like oh you're a military guy all military guys must look like you i'm like uh no yeah at all and the issues that they that come with that are as varied as the individuals that join military service yeah that's fascinating because i mean i've not been around you know a ton of veterans before even working on this project and um but even just in this homeless encampment all those dynamics that you were just talking about yep were there just the way that some people would be self-conscious about their service if they didn't have any deployments. Um, the way they would, you know, have these rivalries between, depending on whatever branch they served in, their relationship to their status. I mean, you know, some people were very identified with it and other people would be happy if you just never mentioned it again. And um, 
it was really interesting. And, you know, all these questions of who deserves what, I feel like people internalized a lot, you know, and and had a lot of self-consciousness about about their service, depending on what it was. And it was it was pretty fascinating. Well, it's a mistake, I think, for people to measure their service or their choice to serve against what it is they ended up doing. Mm. Um, most people probably don't know this, but the vast majority of SEALs don't see combat because it's a matter of time and place in addition to occupation. So you could be at a SEAL team that is, you know, there are SEALs deploying around the world. There are SEALs that are consistently deployed to the Philippines, as an example. And they're largely there, you know, dealing with and kind of tracking the ABUSAF, a radical uh, Islamic organization that most people don't know much about, but there's a huge contingent of them there. But their role is to advise and assist. There's no combat operations that should occur there unless you get ambushed, which happens like once a decade there, usually by accident. Um, and at the same time, from the same SEAL team, there'll be a deployment in Afghanistan or Iraq or the Horn of Africa, which is involved in direct kinetic operations. And then there's a headquarter staff that may be somewhere in the Middle East that has no contact or communication or direct engagement with it whatsoever. That everybody rolls it in together and you think just becoming, because you come from the special operations community that you have this robust level of combat experience. And we see it inside of my own community that I came from. You would see people like, oh, well, how many people have you killed? Like it's an important metric. It's, it's meaningless. But in an occupation that is it combat arms, there is that line in the sand. And it shouldn't matter for anything, but it does matter to people. And my question, you know, and then it becomes a military award. Tell me, what kind of combat awards did you get? This, that, or the other? And I would always bring people back to, like when I went through SEAL training, I went through in 1997. It had been 20 plus years at that point since a SEAL had been involved in a kinetic activity. There's a little bit in Mogadishu. There was four snipers there with the Army guys. A little bit in uh, Panama. And there was a, a combat swimmer operation in Grenada, which involved two people. Two people, entire inside oh. of an entire community. Well, yeah, it's it was like a really small boat, and I actually yeah. think they put way too much explosives on it, right? So even though given the opportunity with two people, right, we're blowing this fucker up. So they they provide that boat. So we have an entire community of people that has no combat experience that trained the people that were serving during nine eleven. So let's take our own metric of oh, it only matters what military awards you have and how many people you've killed. Okay, judge the people that put you through training, the people that you looked at with this level of awe and inspiration. Like, these are the people that I want to be. Guess what? They don't have any of the things that you're now judging our community with. So are they not good SEALs? And it throws people for a loop because they don't know how to, to deal with that. And it's just this measurement game that becomes so incredibly dangerous. What matters and what doesn't? And at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is your, your willingness to raise your hand and say, I volunteer to serve my country. And whatever you do beyond that, it's honorable and it shouldn't be measured so many questions about like why did they choose that location where did they get these matching tents oh my god and the flags like where did this come from this seems like yeah this is like oh this is very militaristic you're just gonna go rank and file and but i think it's like where they got the stuff oh yeah i was too i was like what it, like who provided this so it turns out it was very connected to that va campus next door so that campus so this is um if you haven't been to west la there's this huge va campus that has a hospital and medical facilities but it's like enormous and it's kind of walled in so it's just this weird place that you know if you don't have a reason to go there you probably wouldn't be driving through but it's like 
it's like half the size of Central Park. It's just really big. And it has this weird, unique history where it was, it's there because it was donated in the 1880s by a wealthy, and this will all, this will tie to Veterans Row and, the, and where the tents came from, but it was donated um, by this wealthy widow in the 1880s to be a home for veterans. Because at the time, the country had this whole system of what they called uh, soldiers' homes, and they were all over the country, and they were campuses where people coming back from war, we're talking about the Civil War at the time, could get health care, and they lived. And um, so this became the Pacific branch of that system. And and it was it's in the deed that that's what it was for, it was to be a home for disabled soldiers, as it was, I think, put at the time. And so, but then that system, that was abolished over time. The VA evolved into what it is today, which is healthcare, um, cemeteries, benefits, and uh, parts of that campus kind of fell into disrepair. So it's, so it's an odd place. You've got this working hospital and these bustling sort of medical facilities. And then you've got these rotting old um, buildings that were once housing or a creepy old chapel. Very strange. That all sounds about right. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> You're with me. This checks out. Yeah. And then, and the VA also began um, renting portions of it out to entities that had nothing to do with veterans. So UCLA has a baseball field there. Um, there's a private high school, or maybe it's a, a middle school, high school that has some athletic facilities there, um, stuff like that, which was always controversial because the land was given for this reason. Eventually, that actually even led to a lawsuit um, on some attorneys on behalf of homeless veterans sued the VA and said, you actually have to provide housing here because that was the that was the deal when you accepted this land donation. And um, and they won. And this was years ago. And the VA agreed, OK, we're going to um, this was during the Obama administration. They said, all right, we're going to build new affordable housing on this campus for homeless veterans. We're going to live up to that original deed. Um, they canceled a lot of those outside leases, but not all of them. And and they've been very, I mean, they're working on it, but it has been absolutely glacial. And they've opened the, a very tiny fraction of the housing that they were supposed to have opened by now. And it's really, uh, it's just really been unbelievably slow and it has not been a priority. So anyway, fast forward to 2020, pandemic hits, VA sets up a campground on that site for homeless vets to come and just get a tent and, and shelter and there were some people in the surrounding community who saw that and said, this is kind of pathetic. You're supposed to have housing on this campus for homeless vets by now, and you're giving them these little tents. And so one of those people um, who lived in the surrounding area, Brentwood, he's a army veteran himself. He came up with this idea of like, well, if you're going to give them tents, you should at least give them big tents. And <laughs> he goes, he tries to give this big tent to the VA. And the VA is like, no, we don't want it because like it blows away in the wind or something like that. So he goes out on the street, gives it to somebody there, and that is how this camp started in 2020. So he starts getting more donations, more people start kind of participating in this. They get these matching tents that they set up outside, they put the flags on, and it became this not just, you know, okay, it's a right, it's a regular encampment. So you go there, people are dealing with all the issues that you find at any encampment around LA, but it also became had this protest angle because it was meant to call attention to the fact that. There's supposed to be housing on that campus for homeless veterans. By now, there's not. And so they were kind of trying to shame the VA. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the VA has gotten its fair share of press Yeah. in the modern era. And I will just leave it to people to research it on their own. So that way I cannot be accused of being one side or the other on it. 
what I will say is it has been deserved, the press that they have received. Um, and it doesn't surprise me. I love the term, the glacial pace of uh, actually building the affordable housing. Unbelievable. Well, my suspicion is, is that it's at the pace that is just fast enough to avoid a continued lawsuit, but just slow enough to not actually accomplish anything. Um, I have not had a lot of experiences with the VA. The, the majority of my experiences were when I exited military service. Um, and I'll, I mean, again, I can, it's my experience, so I won't talk too broadly about it, but it's a machine that is, it's not very well tooled. It seems like to accomplish the goal of what it is they're trying to accomplish. And I don't think it's a matter of funding. I think it's a matter of what you do with that money. And again, how focused you can become on the issues at hand. So the VA, they weren't against the veterans row encampment right there. They, they were, were they embracing of it or are they just tolerated? They definitely were not embracing of it, but <laughs> they had an interesting, a lot of my reporting was about the relationship between the VA and the camp. And it was really fascinating. And there was this constant revolving door between the campus and the encampment because that was the other issue going on was that this campus, it's built like it, like a fortress. I mean, it's hard to get into. It's big. If you're going there for services, you know, you got to go to the welcome center and then you got to walk a mile to the hospital. And then at the time you have to get a COVID test. And so a lot of the people that would go to the camp were people who were showing up to the VA in a crisis of some sort. They didn't have anywhere else to go. And they were trying to get into these programs there, maybe a rehab program or, um, you know, for substance abuse or PTSD, or they, they have all sorts of stuff. And then they might not have the wherewithal to navigate that campus and they would end up on that sidewalk outside. So that was going on. And the VA, they kind of seemed to have, I mean, they're, if I had to characterize their stance as a whole, it would be like, well, if they're out there, that's really LA County's problem, not our problem. They're welcome to come in anytime, you know, not, not fully acknowledging the amount of help that some people needed to get in and to get what they needed off that campus. Um, you know, they, I mean, individual VA directors would say, oh, well, you know, we know who they are and yeah, you know, we're, we do support them and, and, and that kind of stuff. But really they, for the most, for most of that time until things changed eventually, but they, they pretty much let LA County deal with it. And there's, there was one guy who became a central character in this podcast series that I did, who, um, had been kind of in that situation himself. He had shown up to that VA for help, trying to get into a PTSD program, had been turned away because he had a service dog and it was this whole odyssey sort of bouncing around on that on the street for a while himself. Um, by the time I met him, he, he had gone through the program at the VA. He was in housing, but he was devoting all his time to this encampment and organizing it on a day-to-day -day level and trying to get a lot of these veterans into programs on the campus. And he, he was talking to the VA directors all the time and was kind of a thorn in their side at times, I think, trying to get people um, into programs on that campus. But it was a very interesting relationship between the encampment outside and all the people inside. And then eventually it did change. How so? Well, there was, so a lot of shit happened at that encampment over the course of this year plus. Um, including two murders. And so after the second one, uh, the VA secretary actually came out to visit this camp out of nowhere, just 
okay, you know, what is going on in Los Angeles? So uh, Dennis McDonough, the current VA secretary, comes, visits Veterans Row, um, does a whole tour of it, and then makes this promise that, like, we're going to get everybody, we're going to get everybody at this camp inside by, you know, this this would have been fall of 2021. So by the end of the fall of 2021. And suddenly it made the local VA leaders have to scramble to come up with solutions that they might not have been so amenable to before. So actually what they came up with was to just, after a year and a half, to move the camp over the fence and rebuild it on the VA campus. So <laughs> so they put the big tents with the flags, they made it identical, and they just put it on the campus. And it's kind of laughable on the one hand, like I almost couldn't believe it when I heard that this was the solution. Like, wh why did this take a year and a half? This is silly. But also... I think, you know, we do give a fair shake to like all the things that really did have to happen for that seemingly anticlimactic solution to occur. You know, um, I mean, by then the veterans themselves, they had a sort of community that they identified with. And so some of them who had had negative experiences at the VA, I think were more open to going onto the campus and keeping that community. And there were things about the VA that had to change. So there was a lot that went into it, but it was, but that was what they did. They lifted and shifted an encampment over a wall. Correct. Yeah. That sounds, that checks out. That sounds like the VA that I know. Year and a half. That's actually. They called it Veterans Road 2.0. I'm not going to complain about that. That's a good t-shirt. Maybe a bumper sticker. Did you notice any difference in the Veterans Row encampment versus uh, the other homeless encampments that you have been in? Yeah. You know, they're all unique. Like they, they are communities and, um, and, and they're all, they all are unique and kind of have their own bonds that tie people together. And this one was, it was, you know, I don't want to say it wasn't chaotic, it was chaotic and it was dysfunctional in a lot of ways. And people were dealing, some people were dealing with very serious issues, but they also had this semblance of military order. They, they had chores that they would assign to people. Um, you know, they did have the matching flags and, and stuff like that. They they definitely had a shared, there was a lot of camaraderie that seemed very unique and that was tied to identifying as veteran and, um, and also having one gripe or another with that campus next door. So it was a, a very unique camaraderie. And then also even more than the people living there themselves, it was the way everybody else reacted to this camp that was totally different to me. I've never seen this at any other camp anywhere in LA. I mean, people would walk there. Like this was an attraction, this place. Like what, once people understood what it was, oh, it's military veterans on the street and they've, you know, they've got these matching flags. Uh, people would show up to throw barbecues there, bring food, do different kinds of volunteering. Now that wasn't so atypical, but then you got political rallies there. People running for office would come and have events there and broadcast them on YouTube. Um, people were always showing up with, documentary projects of different sorts like filming commercials there there was some walmart commercial once filming there it's a dangerous precedent to set yeah it, it highlights you know what i mean again it highlights it highlights a really small subsection of the homeless population not necessarily for the benefit of that population it's for the benefit of the people who are standing there doing the barbecues holding the rallies they're getting more out of it than the veterans are. And it, and again, it puts you into this place where 
maybe I need to be a professional veteran. Like, look at all these people coming and flocking here and doing these things because of who I was and what I used to do. Maybe I don't need to change. Yeah. Yeah, it was, a lot of it was about, was less about the people living in those tents and was about what the people coming were getting out of it. Absolutely. And that became a huge focus of, of what my whole project was about. It was sorting through who's really helping, who is actually helping get people off the street and, you know, who's here to promote themselves. Yeah. Because there was a lot of that. Does the Veterans Row encampment still exist right now? No. So it moved over the fence and then eventually they replaced the tents that were on the campus with tiny homes, which are like these little kind of kind of like shed type yeah. things, but they're, uh, you know, a step up from a tent. I mean, most people definitely prefer them and they have AC. So they now have, so they have that there. So they have a tiny home village that replaced Veterans Road 2.0. And, and actually they did, the VA there did set up um, like a half dozen 24 seven, just walk in, drop in beds. And that has helped keep that sidewalk clear. Yeah, that so. makes sense. In the seven years that you've been Focusing on homelessness, what's broken your heart about it the most? Ooh, that's a good question. That's so hard to answer. Does anything stick out? Like just like something, an incident or a person or an experience that yeah. sticks out the most? There is a lot of them. I would say actually the one that's top of mind because it did happen during this, the reporting of the Veterans Row Project was there was a a guy, an older man, um, he'd been a Marine at one point, had been in Vietnam. He had been living on the VA campus, but uh, for whatever reason left. And there might have been some mental health issues going on, but he left and he ended up on the sidewalk right around where Veterans Row was. But he didn't have a tent. He was just, he had this electric scooter. So he scooted off the VA campus and then the scooter died. And he ended up just sitting on this scooter outside the campus for um, a couple of weeks not moving and had serious, obvious health issues going on, something awful going on with his legs. Um, anyway, his name was Dennis. So we started talking and I interviewed him several times and he, he was totally coherent, um, but definitely had some issues going on. And there was one afternoon that I got him some water and some of these granola bars that he liked. Cause you know, it was just that, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to be a, a person. And um, so I brought him this this water and these snacks, and he was there with another guy who was also homeless. And he said something to me like, he was like, oh, thank you. You're a really nice person. Something about that just gutted me. Something about that. I, it was, I mean, he so clearly needed help. He was right under the nose of medical professionals, outreach workers, you know, all these people right there over a fence. Um, he, and then I don't know, he was so grateful for snacks and water and attributed it to, oh, thank you. You're a really nice person. And it just, oh, it just really, it really killed me. It was like, I don't know. My thought process was kind of like, I'm not really, I mean, I don't think I'm a bad person, but I'm not like, like, this is just, this is so baseline, right? Like, but it's so much more typical to just, you know, walk by, like step over people, not think about it. I don't know. Some, something about that really, really slayed me. I found it really, really unbelievably sad. 
I think it's because we can see ourselves in that person's shoes. Yeah. It, I can, it, again, in my limited experience, some of the people have such a low feeling of self-worth. Yeah. That they, I would almost describe it as, and again, this is me speaking for them, but I would almost describe it as they want to be invisible, but they know that they're not. And they're not happy about where they're at, but they don't know what to do. And when somebody shows them a fucking entry level of humanity and it acknowledges that they exist, it is an incredibly impactful and meaningful thing to them. And most people are so utterly consumed with themselves that they're oblivious to people like that, that they are, like you said, walking over, walking around, intentionally avoiding. And I, it's, I mean, I'm, not an intelligent person by any stretch, but I'm smart enough to realize that I think all of us are a few life choices or circumstances away from potentially being that person. And if we were to remember that a little bit more, perhaps we could find a little bit more empathy and humanity and how we deal with them. Yeah. Easier said than done, but. No, I think you're right. And that is one of the things I think about all the time in my reporting is a homelessness. It is this big systemic crisis and it, and it does require these big picture fixes, you know, that that need to involve, of course, our leaders and our lawmakers and all that. But, but one of my takeaways from that is, well, then there's no real wrong way as an individual to engage with it, right? Because your individual actions, they're not going to fix the whole thing. But they're probably not going to make it worse unless you're doing something really destructive, like selling fentanyl or something. But, you know, so... So just engaging in whatever little way you can, and sometimes that is just making a connection with one person, can be hugely impactful. I think people wring their hands all the time because they're like, oh, this problem feels so intractable. It feels so unsolvable. Like, I don't know how to get involved, so I'm just not going to. And sometimes people will ask me, well, how should I? And I'm like, just anything, whatever, you know, it, there's almost no wrong way to go about it. And, and honestly, just making a connection with somebody can be can have a really big impact for that person and especially you know if even if it's if it's just a friendship or even if you can become an advocate in some way for that person and and then I'm also just my personal obsession is the spiritual cost of living with this crisis and what toll that takes on us because we do talk a lot about the monetary costs of solving it or this solution or that solution or you know da 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 but like I think all the time about what it actually costs us in humanity and in empathy to live with a crisis of this scale. And so that's something that I'm just always exploring and thinking about. It'd be interesting, like an alien race comes down. That's a podcast in and of itself, whether or not they're already here. Uh, this, like This is a leadership exercise that I, I do with people. And I used to call like the, the VCR exercise. People don't know what the fuck that means anymore. I'm like, DVD? Are we uh, like I haven't yet to find the streaming service example of what I'm about to say, but you know, it's it, from a leadership perspective. I'll tell people, I'm like, they just think back on a, for like a month of interaction you had, either personally or professionally, where you know you didn't knock it out of the park, and all you get to do. This interaction was recorded. You have to go to somebody that you consider to be a mentor, somebody that you look up to, uh, somebody that you want to emulate, and all you get to do is hit play and you don't get to explain your actions. And it 
it's a painful exercise because we all have that. Like I got a great one from the last 30 days where I'm like, wow, you <laughs> suck. But it, it allows you to be very reflective. And what it has allowed me to do from a leadership and interaction perspective is I can sometimes catch myself trending down the wrong path because I'll remind myself like, oh man, if I had to watch this back, that's not so great. But you could take the same analogy of a, a unknown species of alien and they have to look only at what you're describing, the, the way that we treat each other as a species, the walking around, the avoiding, the oblivious nature that most people are to the, to the suffering of people that are right around them. That would be an interesting videotape to watch. And I don't think even at an individual level, if people were forced to watch how their change in behavior or just the, their mannerisms or whatever it would be, I don't know if they necessarily would be proud of the way that they behaved. But it's, it's just, I would like to think that that would change behavior, but it seems to me at least that the problem is so overwhelming that people are like, ah, I don't know what to do about it. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I think that's true. The other side of the question that I asked you, the thing that broke your heart the most, can you think of something that gave you or filled you with hope and maybe uh, continue to stoke the fire in you that this is a solvable problem? Yeah. Um, actually, I have a lot of those stories, and which which is great. And one of them is, so prior to the Veterans Row Project, I did a, a series on a uh, that just followed one woman and this journey from the street into housing. This woman, Christine, and she's very unique character, very charming, just funny, um, a fun person, like despite the depressing circumstances she was in, a fun person to, you know, hang out with for a few episodes of a series. And um, so she had been homeless for 10 years. So she got into housing finally. And I did a story on her getting into this apartment. But when I went to visit her, she didn't have any furniture or even sheets on her bed or anything. She was just in this apartment alone. And so the story aired and I was overwhelmed by emails, Twitter messages, all these people wanting to buy her stuff for her apartment. So I had to set up an Amazon registry eventually. I mean, I'd have to, but I was like, well, I don't know what to do. So I'll just set this up, put everything on there, cleaning supplies, shower curtain, pots and pans. And people bought her everything on the list in two days. And so I've like, I loaded up my car brought it all over to her. We unpacked it, you know, took pictures and sent them to the people who had bought the stuff. But it was, I mean, she was amazed. She couldn't believe what people responded to her in this way. And to me, it made me think, okay, people do, they really do want to help. And when they can relate to somebody on an individual level, and it's not just this sort of big blurry problem that's like, uh, I don't know what to do. They really do want to help. And, um, yeah, nice. So there's a lot of hope in that. I do believe at a baseline. I like, I, sometimes I have to tell myself this and just repeat it. Like people are inherently good. People are inherently good. <laughs> but as a broad template for somebody who realizes that they do care and maybe they have a slight excess of time or money or both and they want to do something with it, or would you point them? Well, they're probably there, even if they live in a place where there's not a huge crisis, like in LA. There probably is some level of homelessness or that exists or some service providers that exist in their community. Maybe there's a soup kitchen or 
a mission or something like that. So there's definitely wherever you live, there are people on the razor's edge of homelessness. Yeah. So, I mean, look at your church, look at your community, look at the resources that are there. And I would say those are just good places to start in your own backyard, looking at, you know, where, what are, what are people struggling with in this community, right? Somebody, like you said, is on the razor's edge. Somebody maybe has fallen off of it. Where are they going? Were they getting help? Is there a way that I can pitch in there? I think that's, it's not groundbreaking, but that's a good place to start. It's not groundbreaking, but I think it brings people back at least a step more towards their humanity and a grander scale of things. And it ties back into that. Man, if I had to have my interactions judged by a third party with absent explanation, how do I want that viewed? It's a tough one. It's a reflective exercise, but it can change people's behavior for sure. What do you want to close it out with? City of Tents, Veterans Row is available wherever you get your podcast. No. <laughs> Fire them up. It's, well, no, this um, it is. Yeah. No, uh, self-promotion, but also, um, no, I think this has been a really a profound conversation. I feel like we've touched on a lot of things. And so I guess I would encourage people to, yeah, think about that spiritual cost. What does it cost you to step over someone on the street and tell your kids, ah, just don't think about it, look the other way and sort of teach them to cut off that natural compassion that they have. It's uncomfortable, but I think it's worth thinking about. I think the things that are uncomfortable have the most meaning. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please check out Anna's podcast, City of Tents, Veterans Row. And if you want to learn more about programs designed to help homeless veterans, visit va.gov forward slash homeless. That is va.gov forward slash homeless. Fun, it's not gonna be good. We just drove these cars. Ready! I don't think anything. I hope we didn't break this camera. Six thirty in the morning. The driving's been a little haphazard. Alright, go for it. Projects like this is just something you dream about. Alright, action.